0: Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for May 31st, 2015. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jacks at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon this morning is entitled, It's Hard to See It from Here. We have had several predictions now, and Mark turns us to a third prediction of Jesus' death, and I want us to consider why it is that Mark gives us three predictions. We have to listen carefully as we read. I know that Amy and I always get more out of preaching than you get out of listening. That's just how it works when you study, but it really has been fascinating to look at this book and to try to look at a big picture. Why did Mark write as he wrote? You know, the gospels all have different chronologies. Everything doesn't happen in the same order in the gospels. Why not? The writers put them in these places for particular reasons. And it's been very interesting to study the book of Mark and ask why Mark put, for example, three prediction narratives together with the stories that are interspersed between them. Why did Mark write in such a way? What was he trying to get us to hear? So we read today from the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on a hill, so no matter which direction you came to Jerusalem, you went up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Interesting pair there, amazement and afraid. He took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was happening, what was to happen to him saying see we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise again now this was hard information This is a tough thing to hear from this friend who's been your leader and your guide and you've been walking with him. And Jesus says this, and listen how these disciples respond. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder they were called, come forward and they say to Jesus, just after hearing him say he's going to be killed, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Were they just listening? You know... I'm not sure whether we're supposed to laugh or cry when we read about these disciples, but consistently, as I have read this gospel especially, I have just wanted to knock these disciples in the head. What are you thinking here? He just gave you this grave information, and you want power. Do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? Now, that's an interesting question because we'll hear it again in a few moments. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Now, they weren't talking about heaven. They weren't talking about the afterlife. They thought Jesus was going to come back and overthrow the Romans, and he was going to be the Messiah. And they wanted power in the new monarchy that he established. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they replied, we are able. I don't really know that they knew what they were answering. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Tradition says that all of the disciples, in turn, were martyred for their faith. Maybe there was more truth here than they knew about drinking that cup. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, the other disciples of Jesus, they began to be angry with James and John, rightly so. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. There's a different way to be a leader, Jesus is saying. Who was it? Peter Drucker, who wrote the book and started the movement on servant leadership. A different way to be a leader, and this is what Jesus was talking about. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. The Greek word is actually the same as slave, must be your slave. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be, there it is, slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then this story, and again, I'm asking you to wonder with me why Mark puts this story here. It's not in the same place in the other gospels, Then they came to Jericho, and he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, and Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, the blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say to Jesus, Son of David, mercy me. We don't get the full impact here in the English. The Greek says, Eliason me, mercy me. You know we've kind of turned mercy into a noun we have mercy or we have pity or we feel sorry for someone that's not what it says in the original the the man cried out to jesus mercy me do something for me don't just have pity on me sitting here many sternly ordered him to be quiet but he cried even more loudly son of david mercy me do something for me and jesus stood still and he said call him over here And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, and he came to Jesus. And then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? You hear how this is different from the way the disciples ask it. We want you to do something for us. And Jesus asked, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, my teacher, let me see again. Let me see. Jesus said to him, go. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and he followed Jesus on his way. Where was he going? To Jerusalem. To the cross. He followed him on his way because he could see. You have heard the ancient story. I fell in love with the stars when I was in the sixth grade. I don't mean rock stars, I mean the stars. Most of my classmates disliked our science teacher. It might have been what we called passion, you know, because it was clear he loved his subject matter, and maybe that was the problem. It just made him a little too focused a little too nerdy for that class of the school's quote-unquote brightest who were, who were promising students but trying to work out in-crowd egos between an education which was finally expanding our small-town horizons and those budding hormones which won't let anyone see beyond their own body, much less beyond the city limit sign. You know, it's interesting how that happens when we're expanding and yet we can't see beyond ourselves. Somehow, in the midst of all that, Mr. Pierce hooked me on science. So one winter night, a few of us had gathered with him in a dark field. I could hardly see Cassiopeia for all the frost on my breath, but Mr. Pierce was doing his best. Look over there, just above the horizon, there's a bright star, and look down from there, and then look up, and then look down. It's kind of like a sideways W. Can you see it? We were trying to see, and we tried to see Orion and Scorpius, and my favorite constellation to this day, the little Pleiades, the Seven Sisters. It's that tiny little dipper, and the best way to see it is to not look at it. Well, that's what Mr. Pierce said. It's hard to see it from here. Something about the atmosphere and the way our eyes work at night, you can see it better with peripheral vision. So it's best to just kind of know the general direction in the sky to look, and then you let it catch you by surprise, twinkling through light years of darkness in your peripheral vision some people never can see it some people work too hard at it they can't trust their peripheral sight others don't work at it at all they don't want to see you know there are different kinds of blindness some eyes are nearsighted some are farsighted there is the blindness of familiarity they say which breeds contempt if you've ever tried to proofread any of anything you have written, you know the familiarity that breeds contempt. You can't ever see your own errors. There's the forest and the trees kind of blindness. Some can't see the trees for the forest, and some can't see the forest for the trees. And there is that, if it was a snake, it would have bit me kind of blindness that won't let us see the obvious that's right there in front of our eyes. Well, maybe it was that kind of blindness that a writer named Mark knew as he tried again and again and again to make his point. A full third of Mark's gospel is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life and his death. It must have been very important for Mark, something he really wants his readers to see. Because in addition to giving a third of his time to that story, he spends several more chapters preparing us, getting us ready to be able to see maybe. In his literary setup, he has Jesus give not one, not two, but three, which is the biblical way of saying that something is complete, three predictions of his own death. You get the feeling Mark is really hoping we won't miss this. You have to back up, step away to see it. You need a view of the forest from here, not the view of the individual trees. It's as if Mark really was, you know, a writer. Maybe we don't think of biblical writers like modern, creative tellers of fiction and nonfiction, but Mark was a writer. We need to look again. There's a prediction, followed by two stories that contrast things of heaven and earth. What is Mark trying to get us to see? And there's another prediction and a series of lessons bringing sharp contrast, greatest and least, for us, against us, marriage, divorce, first, last. What is Mark trying to get us to see? And then, as if if we didn't get it the first two times, Mark has Jesus predict his death yet again. And with a mark of genius and through the highest irony, he gives us a blind man to help us see. It's the blind leading the blind which might be the only way. Rowan Williams has pointed out that Mark has been keeping a secret in his gospel in order to reveal it at just the right time. The blind man helps to open our eyes here at just the right time. It's a secret that is hard to see from here. Williams says the secret is that the event which will change everything, which will bring in the regime of God, remember what the disciples were thinking about the regime of God that was coming in? That's not what Mark is trying to help us see. The regime of God, which will forgive sins and release people from their guilt and fear, is not an event brought about by naked power. And that is why it's so hard to see. Because we so love power. Power blinds us to see things as they are. Those things right in front of us. Much less to see things as God sees them. I don't know any area in our country where we are more blind because of our love of power than in our so-called criminal justice system. Consider these statistics that I quoted in a 2008 sermon. All of the numbers are worse since 2008. Today in this quote-unquote land of the free, more than 1% of our total population is incarcerated. This is more in raw numbers and a higher percentage than any nation in the world. The United States of America has more prisoners than Russia and Somalia and China. And we feel good about ourselves, don't we? Economists at the Santa Fe Institute estimate that the number of security related jobs in the U.S. prison guards, security guards, etc. now represent as much as one quarter of the United States workforce. And that's up 40, in 2008, that was up 47% since 2006. A 47% increase in six years, which makes you wonder, if the largest employer in your county is a federal prison, do the citizens of that county want to reduce crime or just convict the next criminal? 90%. Of incarcerated women report incomes of less than $10,000 a year. 90%. Less than $10,000 a year. 80% of them made less than $2,000 the year prior to their incarceration. And 80% of these women are single mothers who lose contact with their children once they are in prison. 90% of all US prosecutors white and nationwide they pursue the death penalty more often if the victim of violence is white. In Georgia, in 70% of cases where the prosecutor, excuse me, where the perpetrator was black and the victim was white, 70% of the time they sought the death penalty. When the perpetrator was white and the victim was black, the prosecutor sought the death penalty 15% of the time. In Mississippi, African Americans make up only 30% of the population, and they comprise 70% of all prisoners. Approximately 80% of all prisoners are non-violent drug offenders. The panel I participated in Friday night, a man sat there whose brother is serving a life sentence life sentence for the possession of, not the intent to distribute, for the possession of less than three ounces of cocaine. In how many college dorm rooms in this country could you find less than three ounces of cocaine today? And this man is spending his life in prison. It's estimated that only 13% of all monthly drug users are African American. They account for 70% of all drug-related arrests. Tell me we are not blind. What is it that we cannot see? And why is it that we cannot or will not see it? We are infatuated with power. We are possessed with this idea that you have to fight fire with fire. And that idea may work if a forest is actually burning, but it is a foolhardy idea otherwise. The scorched earth policy of our badly failed war on drugs, now 30 years old, and our efforts to bolster policing by arming our public servants literally with the weapons of war have decimated several generations of African-American males who are no longer available to this nation's workforce, much less available to be fathers and husbands. And these efforts have left a charred path along an already charred path of racial misunderstanding and mistrust in our country. Now, I'm not suggesting to you today that there are any easy answers to the grave problems that are too real, especially in some of our inner cities, what I am telling you is that we need to take a closer look. Our best efforts, or what we think are our best efforts, are failing badly. The fires which have been smoldering for years are erupting. Ferguson, New York City, Baltimore, this summer, In just a few weeks, the eyes of the nation will be on Charlotte, North Carolina, where Randall Carrick, another uniformed white police officer, will be on trial for the killing of Jonathan Farrell, another African-American male who was unarmed when he was gunned down in our streets. Charlotte is a charming and friendly city, a big city with the small town feel of southern hospitality, just on the surface. And you can believe me that there is fire beneath. The clergy in our city need to be in communication as we approach what will surely be a media spectacle. And now might be the best time in a very long time for you to reach out to a friend whose skin holds a different tone. And if you don't have a friend whose skin holds a different tone, you need to find one. The relationships we foster today might make all the difference in what happens in our streets in July. If Charlotte-Mecklenburg police officers have to resort to a show of force to keep the peace here, we will have already lost another battle. Now, if you think I'm rambling here on just another one of my soapboxes chasing rabbits, away from today's text, I want you to think again. Our nation's efforts have failed because they are based on that old false premise that might makes right. We find ourselves as a nation in the untenable situation of fighting violence with more violence. And you see where that's getting us. Engaging terrorism with yet more terror. Of responding to fear only by creating more fear. Of combating blindness By simply turning a blind eye? At what point, at what point are we going to learn that biblical justice isn't just some pie-in-the-sky theology for preachers who enjoy the sound of their own voices? When might we ever try biblical justice in our policy making? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That means live with them and know what they are going through. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. When did you last associate with the lowly in our city? Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, for it is written, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, lock them up. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink, tutor their children in school, visit them. What are we doing for the least of these among us? Treat them well, visit them, feed them, give them to drink for by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus did not combat the greatest nation on earth with an arsenal of weaponry. He walked into the fire and he let his life speak. And that's the secret. That's the secret of Mark's gospel And that is the secret of peace in Charlotte and around the world. Listen first. Seek to understand. Live together. Empathize with. Open your hearts and your minds. Let go. Live with one another and learn to taste sacrifice for one another. The secret is love, which can be practiced in public policy. You know, it looks a lot like weakness to the world, but it is actually the greatest power there is. Maybe one day we will be willing to try it, but it's hard to see from here. So let's look and look. And look again, the love of God and the way Jesus lived really is our only hope. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening today. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina. Encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Grace and peace to you.